Likewise, there are people, James is arguing, who say they have faith in Jesus Christ. They say they are born again. They say they are saved. They say they are on their way to heaven, but they are really not. It is a dead faith. It is intellectual only. It is in the mind. They may know the doctrines of salvation, but they've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl continues his message in James chapter 2 on faith, as he reminds us that real faith always brings a changed life. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his message. When Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says some are preaching a different gospel, but it's really not gospel because there's only one gospel. There's only one true gospel. But like he says to the Corinthians, there are men out there preaching who are preaching not Jesus, but another Jesus, not the one that is represented in Scripture. Likewise, there are people, James is arguing, who say they have faith in Jesus Christ. They say they are born again. They say they are saved. They say they are on their way to heaven but they are really not. It is a dead faith. It is intellectual only. It is in the mind. They may know the doctrines of salvation, but they've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Real faith always brings a changed life. So that's his first argument. You're with me? A faith that is worthless. Second, in verses 18 through 26, he presents a different argument. Not a faith that is worthless, but a faith that works. A faith that works. Now, in this section, he follows again the exact same progression. He first gives the argument in verses 18 and 20. He illustrates it in verses 21 through 25. And then he applies it in verse 26. So you can fill in those blanks if you're concerned. So the paragraph that follows, by the way, is one of the most important passages in the New Testament that a Christian needs to be able to explain. It's not if are you going to get questioned over this text. If you're engaged in active, ongoing evangelism, it is when are you going to get engaged in this text. Many non-Christians will throw it up in your faith to either say their way of salvation, faith and work saves is the right way, or they will just dismiss the Bible altogether and say it's contradictory, it's therefore cannot be trusted as the word of God. Listen, even Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, had tremendous difficulty with this paragraph of Scripture. So much so that at one point in his life, he said the book of James should not be part of the canon of Scripture, that it was not inspired by God, that it was indeed a right, starry epistle, to use his words. 
The more he thought about it, the more he studied it, he later learned that James was not at all contradicting the Apostle Paul, but they actually were defending the same faith. And so this is a very important passage of Scripture for those who call themselves evangelicals. So I want you to pay close attention. So let's look first as, at the argument as it is presented. The argument as it is presented. Notice, if you will, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I want you to notice two truths about this introductory phrase, but someone may well say. First of all, it is a future tense. And if you have the, uh, the NASB with marginal notes, if you look out in the margin, it gives you the literal rendering. But someone will say, meaning it's in the future. In other words, James is anticipating an objection to those who say, I have faith, so my works are not important at all. The second truth I want you to notice is that the word say is a recurring word throughout this paragraph of Scripture. He's talking about people who make a profession in word only, so much so that they make it an option. The New English Bible, which was a British paraphrase, rendered it this way. Here is one who claims to have faith and another who points to his deeds. But you see, the Bible never makes it an option. It is not faith or works. It is a faith that works. And so in answering his objectors, James says this, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, circle the word show me. You see, we're going to see that James is speaking of a particular kind of justification, what we might call a show me justification. Hold that thought. We're coming back to it. James is saying to say that you have real faith, but you do not have any works to prove it, then that is an empty faith. In fact, he will argue that is the same kind of faith that demons have. And so he says here in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. I don't know about you, but I love to read polls, and I'm fascinated by them. And I'm amused by some of the questions that they ask and some of the answers that they give. Gallup, some years ago, interviewed a number of people from various mainline denominations. And I suppose that's not a bad place to start. How many of you are here from a Baptist background? Raise your hand. The question that he was asking was, how many of you believe in the existence of God? Well, I want to tell you the Baptist came out on top. 95% of the Baptists said, there's a God. Well, isn't that neat? I'm sure God was sweating that one. How about Presbyterians? How many from the Presbyterian background? You know, God's fro there's one there, one willing, two willing to admit it. God's frozen, chosen. You came in second. 92% of Presbyterians said there is a God. How many Methodists? I hate to break it to you. Only 85% of the Methodists said there is a God. How many Episcopalians? Not a one? Oh, there's one up there. 79% of Episcopalians. But if you could pull all the demons, 100% have an unquestioned belief that there is a God. Listen, God is one. The demons affirm that. 
We just studied in the Doctrine of the Trinity in our course in basic discipleship that is available at our website, the Doctrine of the Trinity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. The Shema, it's the great confession of faith that every Jewish person makes every Sabbath. And it's not unique to the Old Testament. It is affirmed in the New Testament. And so we saw clearly that as Christians, we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And even demons believe that doctrine. And they believe it so much so that Paul says they, uh, James says that they shudder. The word shudder is the Greek word frizzo. We can hear our word frizzy in it. It is used to describe a sense of horror where literally your hair stands on your neck. It bristles. And so there are some people who have never been born again, but they would say they are, but all they have really is a demon faith. They intellectually understand certain truths, like the demons believe God is one. They may have had an emotional experience like the demons who literally tremble, but it's never touched their heart as an act of the will. And James wants us to understand that you can have an impeccable theology and still be lost. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Presbyterian preacher, dead now for many decades of the 10th Presbyterian Church. He was a great pastor. The only Presbyterian I knew who believed that uh, in dispensationalism, that God was not done with Israel, but God had a future for the church, I mean, for the nation of Israel. But he so wisely said, there will be more fundamentalists in hell to start a good fundamentalist convention. Now, that's a profound statement. You see, the demons are very orthodox. And if you actually do a study when demons speak, for Jesus said the mouth speaks what's in the heart, it's fascinating to hear their theology. Here's a slide that will give you a breakdown of demon theology. For instance, in Matthew 8, 29, they believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. They shouted, what do we have to do with you, son of God? In Mark 124, they believe that Jesus is holy. The demon shouted, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 7, they believe that Jesus has authority to judge. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. In Luke 4:41, the demons there in Capernaum believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent to save us. And so the demons, it says, were also coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ, the Messiah. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 31, they affirm that there is a place of eternal judgment, a place of punishment for the wicked. And so it says they were imploring him, Jesus, not to command them to go away into the abyss. And then in Acts 16, 17, a demon cries out in the slave girl that is bothering Paul, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. My point is, is that you can be very orthodox 
You can have a demon kind of faith and still die and go straight to hell. And that's what James wants us to understand. But we need to ask, why is it that a sound creedal faith does not help a demon? I mean, after all, a demon could sign the doctrinal statement of Community Bible Church. Suppose the devil this morning came down front during our invitation, and he wanted to join Community Bible Church. And I say to him, Mr. Devil, now you want to become a member of this church? Yes, I do. Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Most certainly, I believe that. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Oh, yes, I witnessed his virgin birth that night. Do you believe that Jesus died on a cross? Died on a cross? Are you kidding? I was there. Well, do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Oh, yes, I know that. He is alive, all right. Well, do you believe that he is coming again? Yes, I believe that, but I'd rather not talk about that. Okay, Mr. Devil, if we accept you into the membership of this church, are you willing to be baptized by immersion? Oh, yes, I know that's the Bible's way of baptism. I saw the Lord Jesus as he was being baptized. I was right there waiting for him to tempt him into the wilderness, the event that followed. Well, Mr. Devil, if you were to become a member of Community Bible Church, would you faithfully attend this church? What are you talking about? I'm here every single Lord's Day. I'm more faithful than a lot of your people are. I promise I will be here every single week. In fact, I'd be willing to sing in the choir. I might even serve as a deacon. I think I've met a few of them. Not here, of course. I would even be willing to fill the pulpit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, if his pastors also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. My, 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 Mr. Devil, that is a fantastic confession of faith. Let me ask you just one more question. Would you be willing to confess Jesus as Lord? And with all the sinister venom within him, he says, No! I will never confess him as Lord. I hate Jesus. See, it's one thing to be lost because you've never heard the plan of salvation. It is far worse to know all the right facts, to have an orthodoxy that has never changed you, that like a demon faith, it's intellectual, it's emotional, but it's never touched the will, and you've missed salvation by 18 inches. You have it here, but it's never touched here. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And so James asks a very perceptive question here in verse 20. Notice, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Now, that's the argument presented. So having presented it, he now illustrates it in verses 21 through 25 there on your outline, the argument as it is illustrated. Now, remember, in the last illustration, he dealt with a faith that is worthless. James used a hypothetical illustration of a brother or a sister in need of daily food or of clothing. But now James describes a faith that works 
And to do so, he uses two real-life illustrations. The first illustration comes from the life of Abraham in verses 21 through 24. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? That's Genesis 22. You might want to put that in the margin. Genesis 22. It's key to understanding the argument and to understand how James is giving a different presentation of Abraham than Paul is. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Do you see that quote there in verse 23? The change of typeset, if you're a new believer and new to the scripture, indicates that this is an Old Testament quotation. Put out on the margin, Genesis 15, 6. Or if you have cross notes, just circle it among the cross notes. Very important, the order here. Now, with that in mind, let's read Genesis, I mean, let's read verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, hold your finger here for a moment in James, and I want you to turn to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans, and I want you to go to chapter 3. By the way, Romans is one of the most detailed, clearest treatises on salvation in all of the scripture, in all of the New Testament. Romans 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section where he concludes that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 9 through 11 is the national section. He asks and answers the question, why is Israel in unbelief? And he shows how God elected Israel, chapter 9, how they rejected their Messiah, chapter 10, but how in the future he's going to restore them. And then 12 through 16 is the practical section. So right now he's in the doctrinal section, and he deals with three critical doctrines. And the first is that of, or the second is, the first is condemnation, the second is justification. And so I want you to see here in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He's been arguing that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And he brings one of the most powerful sections of the whole epistle that's found in verses 19 through 28. I think a Christian should memorize it. I think a Christian should be able to explain it word by word by word. And he says here in verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, put those two verses side by side in your mind. If you are here or watching on TV, you can see it on the screen. They seem to clash with one another. James says that a man is justified by works. And Paul plainly says here that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Now, who is right? Which is correct? They're both right. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. As we're going to see in a moment, they are complementing one another. How do you know? Well, let me give you three undisputable reasons. Number one, in the first place, James is not writing to Christian Jews. Remember, that's his audience, as we know from the opening verse. The church at first was virtually entirely Jewish until Acts chapter 10. There were some Samaritans in Acts 8. But remember, the early church initially was all Jewish. All Jewish believers. And James is one of the first letters written in the New Testament. He's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. 
And he is not writing this letter in which to contradict what Paul says. The fact is, Paul had not yet been on his first missionary journey. Paul had not written his first epistle that he doesn't write until after the first missionary journey known as Galatians. So he's not contradicting him. He's not writing against Paul. They're in full agreement. Secondly, in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, James oversees it. Remember, this is the apostle James, who's the half brother of the Lord Jesus, and he truly affirms that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul records that James gave him the right hand of fellowship. Why? Because they're in perfect agreement with one another. The third reason, and perhaps the most important reason, is that they are using the exact same word justified with two different meanings. Listen, very often words in whatever language you are dealing with, some words are determined by their context as to what they mean. So when I speak of a trunk, do I mean what's out in front of an elephant? What's at the base of a tree? What's behind a car? What's over a sailor's shoulder? It all depends on its usage. It all depends on its context. Please understand that Paul is using the term justification as a declaration, whereas uh, James is using the term justification as a vindication. Paul is using the term by which God declares you to be righteous, whereas James is using it to vindicate, to prove that you have received this righteousness. Paul is dealing with the holiness that God imputes to you when you are declared righteous. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Unless you have an imputed righteousness that is gifted to you from God, you will never see the inside of heaven. Whereas James, on the other hand, is dealing with the validation of that righteousness, where we justify or prove that we have been declared righteous in God's sight. Here's a chart that maybe will help you to sort out the two between Paul and James, two views on justification. Paul is emphasizing inward justification. James is emphasizing outward justification. Paul is focusing on the means of salvation where James is focusing on the marks of salvation. Paul deals with the root of salvation. James deals with the fruit of salvation. Paul is dealing with a no-so salvation. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. People tell me all the time, well, no one can know. No, the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. He's dealing with a no-so salvation. The only way you can know that you're saved is if salvation is by grace and not earned by human effort. Because if good works and some way contribute to your salvation, you would never know until you died whether you did enough good works or the good works you did were done well enough. So he's dealing with a no-so justification, where James is dealing with a show-so justification. Paul is explaining justification before God. James is explaining justification before men. So they are not soldiers in different armies. They are soldiers in the same army fighting back-to-back against different enemies. Paul is fighting against the false teaching that salvation is earned by works. James is dealing with the false teaching 
teaching that says a person can be saved without works. Listen, it is not faith versus works. It is a faith that works. We're saved by faith alone, but again, the faith that saves is never alone. Now, while we're here in Romans, just look across the page to chapter 4 for a moment. In chapter 3, Paul has explained that you're saved by grace apart from works. And some might say, well, this is an invention of the apostle. He made up this doctrine. This is not what God has always revealed. And so to prove that God has only had one way of salvation throughout all of time, he takes Israel's two greatest heroes, Abraham and David, and he documents from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that they were saved in the same basis that we're saved. Look at Abraham since he's our focus. Look at uh, Romans 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because you're not justified by works before God. For what does the scripture say? So to document that you're saved by grace through faith and not by works, he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what we just read in James 2.23. They both quote the same identical verse to make a different point. And the order is critical. Paul first quotes Genesis 15, and then he validates that the faith is real later in chapter 4, and he quotes Genesis 22. James takes it in reverse order because he's dealing with vindication before men, and he first quotes Genesis 22, and then he quotes Genesis 15. So what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, follow his argument, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. You work hard all week. Your boss hands you a check. He doesn't say, well, here's a gift. Here's an expression of my goodness and grace. I want you to have it. You'd say, this is not grace. I just put in 50 hours. You owe it to me. I've earned it. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But here's the contrast. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So while Paul uses Abraham to demonstrate that a man is saved by faith, James uses him to say that a man is saved by works. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. You need to understand this. James references two passages, Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, but the order is very significant. He reverses them. He starts with Genesis 22, and then he moves to Genesis 15. So, go to the book of Genesis, chapter 15 for a moment. The book of Genesis. In the Jewish Bible, it's called Barashit, from the very first word. In the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. And so they take their first five books and title them after the first words in each of those books. We take the title from our Greek Bible, the Septuagint. Genesis 15, look at verse 1. After these things, that is after the defeat of the five kings in Genesis 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, that you 
Uh, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, that is Eleazar, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. As Pastor Carl points out, James is emphasizing outward justification, the marks of salvation, the fruit of salvation, and justification before men. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 006. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his message from the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.